0: All right, everybody, grab your Bibles or your phones or your apps or whatever it is and turn to Romans 14. That's where we're going to be today, Romans chapter 14. I'm going to start this morning a little bit. It's a little bit out of my, I don't know, my gift, giftedness and my, my comfort zone, but I want to do it anyway because I think it makes a point. I'm going to start with a poem. Are you ready for a little poetry? Okay, I'm glad one of you is. All right. Here it is, believe as I believe, no more, no less, that I am right and no one else, you confess, feel as I feel, think only as I think, eat what I eat and drink only what I drink. Look as I look and do always as I do, then and only then will I fellowship with you. One of you gets that. Talking about disputable matters today in the church. Uh, There's an author, a really interesting pastor, and author named Larry Osborne. He's got a great book that's considered a classic now. It's called The Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. Uh, He makes the same point, only less poetically and more succinctly. And he says it this way. Your passion is not automatically my passion. Your passion is not automatically my passion. So as a church, we've been studying the book of Romans for the last millennia, I I think it is. And we we got to chapter 12 and we realize now we're post the first 11 chapters of doctrine, theology, gospel, and God's sovereignty. And now in chapter 12, we begin to talk about how all of this applies to our lives. And primarily, it applies to our lives through the fact that we are to embrace and manifest genuine gospel love Not only to each other in the church, but to those outside of the church as well. And and what we've seen in the last several weeks that in in chapter 12, the nature of love that Paul teaches us about is that love is, is a serving kind of love and that it's other oriented. And then we get to chapter 13 which we've, we have looked at the last two weeks and Sean preached on the last half of last week and we see that in chapter 13 the nature of love also is submissive. That we are to submit to one another and that we are to submit to not only God but also the authorities that he has established. So love is other oriented, it's service oriented and it's also submissive. And now in chapter 14 these next two weeks and then into chapter 15 the third week from now Uh, we're going to see that that genuine love also has, as part of its nature, it's a unifying agent. It is a unifying agent. And again, all of this love is a function of what I would suggest uh, is Paul's thesis statement in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, where he says, Listen, in view of God's mercy, because of what God has done for you, because of His sovereignty, His grace, and His love, Here's how you're to live, and what he says specifically is that our lives are to be acts of sacrificial worship to God. Our entire lives, not part of them, but our entire lives, we are to live our lives in sacrificial worship to God, and not only that, but we're going to live transformed lives because God, through His Spirit and through His Word, are going to renew our minds, And so a life of sacrificial worship and transformation by this renewing of our minds is going to result in genuine love, which he says in verse 9. And genuine love is a love that abhors evil and holds fast to what is good. And then he defines that throughout the next several verses, and even I would argue, as many other people do, the next several uh, chapters. And so today we're, we're doing the first 12 verses of Romans 14. And I know for some of us that's a little bit odd. The way, the way we've decided to parcel out this book of Romans over the last two years. Uh, only a few weeks ago we were going through Romans chapter 12 and we were going literally verse by verse. There was one verse every Sunday. And now we're going to do 12 verses in one Sunday. So here's the deal. Some of you are, are relieved about that because you kind of like the flyover. Others of you are frustrated because you want to get into every jot and tittle about about the word studies and the uh, grammar and all of that. So here's what we're going to do today. You're going to have to understand we're not going to be able to go as deep on the text as we normally do. And in fact, these next three weeks, they all kind of fit together under this idea that love is a unifying agent and we're going to kind of deal with that. So there's going to be a time of introduction that I'm going to give that's going to, that's going to help us for these 12 chapters, but it's also going to help us for the next three weeks. Then I'll get into the text a little bit, and then I'm going to end the message with five points of, of really, I think, helpful application. What, what do these 12 verses mean to us uh, today? Uh, and the first thing I want to do is, is I want to take these terms that you're going to see throughout the next three weeks, the idea of those who are weak in faith and those who are strong in faith. And I want to define those uh, for us as best I can. So let's start there. The weak, which we see in verse one of this passage today, the weak in faith are those who tend to judge other people on the basis of their behavior and try to control other people's behavior through lots of rules. So some of us would say, well, well, the weaker in faith is someone who tends to be a legalist. Okay? The, weakened, the weak Christian is still a Christian. We have to understand that they're They're still gospel, they're still gospel centered, they're still in Christ, but they're also at this time still struggling with a full understanding and appreciation of what the gospel means, what true grace is from God, and what it means to live free in Christ. And I will tell you, I've been a Christian for almost 30 years now, and I went through that period of time where I was a weakened faith legalist, and I was very judgmental of the behavior of other Christians okay so i understand what that's about and what's that like in paul's context he's writing the church at rome where there seems to be two um kind of factions in in the church at rome there's the jews and the gentiles the jewish christians and the gentile christians and so he would describe the weaker christians as the jewish christians and i'll explain why in just a minute now the stronger in faith is the Christian who now understands and sees everything as clean. God has made everything clean. God has created everything. Everything he has created is good and would would, uh, come under subjection to uh, to, uh, Paul's teaching in other places where he says everything is permissible. We have freedom in Christ. Everything is now permissible. And the really strong Christian, the one who's totally mature in his faith, would also understand the second part of that everything is permissible statement, what comes after it, But not everything is profitable or beneficial for us to do. Just because it's permissible doesn't mean that we go and do it, but rather now we live by the discernment and wisdom of the Lord. Okay, So the strong Christian is the one who understands that everything is permissible. Uh, uh, they have a strong understanding of what it means to be free in Christ. But here's the problem for the stronger Christian. Not all of them are so strong that they understand that second part, that there needs to be discernment. They need to understand that not everything is beneficial or profitable. So often for the strong Christian, their expression of freedom comes in a very arrogant way in a very pious and arrogant way. They're kind of looking down their nose at other people that don't agree with their behavior. And in fact, that will often cause the weaker brother or sister to start to stumble in their faith because of what they're doing. And they don't really care. They just want to express their freedom. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's not, He's not excoriating one group at the expense of the other. He's telling both of them, in, in their tendency to be judgmental in whatever way that they are, that they are a problem because they're causing conflict within the church. And the stronger in faith tended to be Gentiles because. Unlike the Jewish Christians, they didn't have the baggage of the Mosaic ceremonial law to try to filter the gospel of Jesus Christ through. They were just sinners who are now saved by grace. And they're going, this is great. I'm no longer a sinner. I am am saved by grace and I stand before God in, in righteousness. And I'm justified. Okay. So like I said, both the strong and the weak in their In their uh, misinterpretation of the gospel, both the strong and the weak have have the tendency to cause disunity in the local church, which is a huge problem. For Paul, And that's why he addresses this. So arrogantly flaunting your freedom in Christ, but also immature judging of others are both causes for grave concern. And that's what Paul's doing in these next three passages that we look at. Now, unity is so important that it's throughout the entire Bible. I mean, for instance, David says in Psalm 133, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. And then Jesus also was all about the unity. On the last night of his life, in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, when he goes, he's just... Spoken to his disciples for four chapters, what I call his famous last words, really important teaching uh, to his his closest friends on that night. He then goes and he prays, and all of John chapter seventeen is this incredible prayer where 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 Jesus prays for himself, and then he prays for his disciples, the church that was there with him, and then he prays for the church eternal. He he prays for everybody who's going to come to know him through the gospel teaching of these disciples in front of him. In other words, he. He prays for you and I today. He was praying for us. And here's what he says in verses 20 and 21. He says, I do not ask for these only. In other words, I'm not just praying for those who are with me here today, but I'm also praying for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, through the words of the the disciples, then they're going to write these letters and they're going to pass on the oral tradition of the gospel. They're going to build churches So we believe as a result of the work and the foundational gospel centered work of the disciples 2,000 years ago, we believe today. Jesus prayed for us, for those who will believe, that they may all be one. There you go. He wants unity just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In other words, there's a pragmatic reason that the church should be unified. And the reason is because how could so many diverse people come together and love each other and live a gospel-centered life if it's not true? The unity of the church... The unity of a gospel-centered life will testify and give witness to the reality of Christ to the rest of the world. That's one of the things that we are called to do. It's really important for us to be able to grasp that. Yet it's also important for us to understand that even in the midst of all of our unity, we value diversity. That's what makes the unity of the church so powerful is because it's all these diverse people coming together we've talked about this before we need to also embrace paul's teachings on on the body and spiritual gifts like in 1 corinthians 12 where he writes if the whole body if the entire church were an eye if the entire church had only one spiritual gift and let's say that spiritual gift was serving through stacking chairs we wouldn't be able to do anything else. It would be a problem. We wouldn't be a body. We wouldn't be able to move. We wouldn't be able to function. If the, let me use it a different way. If the entire church was made up of one spiritual gift and that's preaching, all we would do is preach. We wouldn't do anything else that the Gospel calls us to do. So he says, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chooses and if all were a single member where would the body be and we need to remember that body has a head and that head is christ it's all in submission to him in other words here's what paul's saying christians are not clones at least not of each other we're not clones of each other and the goal of the church is not simply homogenization yet that's what many christians want in many churches look like me think like me Behave like me. See the whole world the way I see the world. And the answer to that is not necessarily we need to look like Jesus before we're going to look like you. Before we're going to behave like you. Before we're going to think like you. We need to test everything against Jesus and submit everything to His Lordship first. And so here's the big idea for these 12 verses. Here it is. It's, It's not one simple statement. It's a little bit more convoluted than my big ideas usually are. But here it is. Only Jesus is Lord, we answer to God, therefore we welcome our brothers and sisters, and we are cautious about judging one another. Some of you are like, that's longer than the passage. I know, I can get a little wordy at times. Here it is again, just so you hear it. Only Jesus is Lord, we answer to God, therefore we welcome our brothers and sisters, and we are cautious about judging. And we know from history and from writings and things that there was tension in the roman church between the jewish christians and the gentile christians lots of tension between those two groups and the tension wasn't just religious and spiritual it was also cultural and political just like today there's tension in in churches there's tension between the hipster christian and the stodgy christian and there's come on now hang with me all right there's 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 tension between republican christians and democratic christians and there's there's tension between beer-drinking Christians and, and cigar-smoking Christians. There's tension between the Christians who love hockey and, and those who are boring Christians. That's my own personal opinion. There. Um, and, and it's interesting because Paul doesn't use any of those as his examples necessarily, but we could talk about that. But his examples are whether or not you eat meat... And whether or not you hold or esteem one day as more valuable than the other. Those are his two examples. And and let me just suggest to you, that meat-eating one and vegetarian one or veganism one, the one he uses, that's pretty applicable to this Arcadia area. We have lots of conversations about that. So let's talk a little bit about that. Here you go. This is where the tension is. And I'm not saying tension as if it's necessarily bad. We can make it bad by the way we approach it. But it's not necessarily bad. We know intellectually, every one of us who's ever studied this, we know intellectually exactly what the Bible says about this. All things are now permissible. God has made all food clean. All food is now kosher. Meat, pork, whatever it is, it's all kosher now. What defiles you and what makes you unclean is not what goes into you, but what comes out of your heart. That's the way Paul and and, and the other writers of of the New Testament, Luke, have described this. Everything is clean now, even meat. Yet, for a great many Christians, they would argue, and I would, I would also agree, they have some pretty good biblical arguments about this. They would argue that it's not good to eat meat. And so we have a little bit of that tension. So imagine, let's try to bridge the gap now and kind of combine the first century and the second century. You have um, the Gentile meat-eating Christian who attends Redemption Arcadia named Jim. And, and it's Sunday afternoon. It's after second service. And and uh, Jim goes home and he lives in the neighborhood of Shriners uh, Sausage Company on 7th Street, okay? And so he walks down to Shriners and, and, he, and he gets a whole big bag of different meats, mostly meats that are stuffed in casings, which is the way most meat should be. And, he, and he's got his bag of meat and he's walking home now. And he runs into, he just happens to run into, who's walking in the same neighborhood, he happens to run into Mort, who is a Jewish Christian who also attends Redemption Arcadia. And they run into each other. And Mort says, hey Jim, how you doing? And Jim says great Mort how you doing and Mort says well what you got there and Mort says I I mean Jim says dude I got me man I got me some brats I got me some Italian sausage and I got me some dogs baby we're having a barbecue this afternoon we're gonna watch the Cardinals beat Washington why don't you come over and Mort kind of gets a little bit standoffish and then he gets a little bit snarky and then he leaves abruptly and so now they're they're, there and Jim is standing there going I wonder what just happened Well, Mort has judged Jim because he's not pious enough to understand that he shouldn't be eating meat. And suddenly it dawns on Jim, I'm being judged and condemned by Mort all all because I'm expressing my freedom in Jesus Christ. That's not right. And so from that day forward, Jim and Mort never sit near each other in church. In fact, they start to go to different services, one at the 9 and one at the 1045. 1045. And the irony, of course, is that they both love the Arizona Cardinals and they both happen to love Jesus. But now there's disunity. They've been divided. So here's here's the thing. The easy thing to do, and we've been pretty good at this for decades, even centuries, the easy thing to do is to split the church, come up with all these different denominations, decide on grape juice or wine for communion, and then have a big meeting where everybody gets on the same page artificially about worship music. Amen? That's the easy thing to do. The hard thing to do is to listen to Paul's counsel and heed it in, in chapter 14. That's the hard thing to do. In genuine love, encounter each other the way we should. This is really important. What we're talking about is this idea of disputable matters. In verse 1, Paul says, Don't quarrel over opinions. Uh, today we would call those matters that are in dispute. They are matters that are not spoken to directly or at all by Scripture, and so there's some doubt about how we might approach them. And here's what's funny. In the Greek, that word opinions is literally rendered or should be rendered things that don't really matter eternally. In other words, eternally. I I have a friend who no longer lives in Phoenix. We used to be pretty good friends, and we'd go to these gatherings and things and 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 we would watch as brothers and sisters in christ would get all twisted up and knotted up in arguments about these disputable matters and they would start to say things that i know that they regret and and that were kind of hurtful and sort of angry all about these disputable matters and and my friend and i would look at each other we had this thing that we would say all the time we would say what does this really matter in the eternal scheme of things What does this really matter in terms of our eternity submitted to the lordship of Christ? It really doesn't matter that much. It's not that we shouldn't have conversations about it, but the conversation should be filled with with discernment and love and wisdom and compassion. And so we're talking about disputable matters. The week where the Jewish Christians who had... I would say in many cases, legitimate questions and concerns about how their new faith in Christ meshed with the Mosaic ceremonial law, and the strong uh, in faith were those who simply saw as everything is permissible, everything's clean now, so let's just, there's no secret or secular, let's just live in our freedom, yo. So we're talking about three things here. We're talking about freedom, we're talking about judging, And we're talking about who's really in charge. If you want to break it down, you could break it down that way. And understand, in chapter 14, we got it going two ways. Arrogantly flaunting your freedom is just as bad as immature, pious condemnation of others. There's a great quote that one of the scholars writes about Paul. Paul was, Paul's a strong Christian now, understand that he's strong in faith. Paul was so completely emancipated from his previous spiritual bondage that he was not even in bondage to his emancipation. Do you understand that the problem with the strong, some strong Christians is that they're so intent about their freedom in Christ that they have become slaves to their freedom. And they don't understand how the expression of that freedom could be doing damage to other people. They don't even want to stop and consider it because they are free in Christ now. Those other Christians just need to grow up. That wasn't Paul. He was free to do whatever he wanted He, knew that he wanted to do. He knew that, but he would control himself for the sake of others. Here's how I've heard it said, and I love this. Love always does what's in the best interest of others. And that was Paul's understanding. He even says in chapter 15, verse 1, we'll get there in two weeks, he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak and not to please ourselves. Here's what he's saying. Those who are strong in faith, sometimes you need to slow down. And you need to start asking questions about how your freedom being expressed is going to affect the rest of the community. What does your freedom mean in the midst of a community? Should you really be doing those things in front of or with certain people. It's a question we at least need to be wrestling with. And I know people have their answers, but we should be wrestling with it. Freedom in the gospel is not freedom to just behave any way we want, anytime we want. But freedom in the gospel also means that we're free from judging other Christians in this area of disputable matters. And those three things that we're we're talking about, freedom, judging others, and, and who's really in charge, they're related and they're intertwined. There is freedom in not passing judgment. Do you understand that? Those who have released themselves from the bondage of being everybody else's personal Holy Spirit and judging them, understand how freeing that is. I'm one of them. When I finally reconciled the fact that I am not God's agent in the sense that I am going to correct everybody else and make them live as I live, or at least as I live publicly, you get the subtlety there, okay? I was so freed. It was a wonderful blessing to finally realize, God's got this. He can take care of this. I don't have to be so intent about this. There's freedom there. People who are constantly judging others are really actually in bondage to their own pride. And the irony is that God is the only one who has the right to judge. True freedom comes when we realize that we're not God and God is going to be God. After all, the last verse of this section, verse 12, says that all of us are eventually going to give an account to the Lord. We're not going to give an account to each other. We're going to give an account to the Lord. And I love the flow of these 12 verses. Paul does this quite often. He starts, the flow goes like this. He starts with the emphasis on us But he ends, moves towards and ends with the emphasis being on Jesus and His Lordship. And that is the Gospel there. The good news is that we are are under His Lordship and His authority. He's God and He has justified us. Not because we're so special, but because He loves us and now with that same love He wants us to go out and love each other. That is amazing. And so, You look at the text, and I think you could divide the text into three. If you wanted to outline it, there's three major areas. Verses 1 through 4 talk about how we should accept one another. Verses 5 and 6 talk about how we should know why we believe what we believe. Don't just believe something, but know why you believe it. And then verses 7 through 12, very simply, embrace the lordship of Christ. And, and if you look at verse 1 and, and, and you look at what it says, you realize that what Paul's saying is that one of the great temptations of those who are strong in faith is to judge those who are not as mature or erudite or faithful as the strong in faith perceive themselves to be. There's some arrogance and some pride going on there. And, and, and also, many would say that, that, that the word weak is probably uh, too strong. It's a little bit pejorative that maybe immature would be a better translation. Yet we also have to understand that what Paul's teaching here is that it's, it's not necessarily your desire to become a strong Christian and get the strong Christian t-shirt. That's not what, I know, Paul s- describes himself as strong in faith, but that's not what he's trying, he's not saying, look, you who are weak, you need, to, you need to pine to be strong and get the t-shirt. That's not what he's saying. Because the strong have issues as well. We need to realize that. Only if you were one of the strong in faith did you consider arrogant righteousness to be a good thing. You see that? It's good to be strong in faith, but only if you have the maturity to also understand that you need some discernment when you're exercising this. So both the weak and the strong had issues with being judgmental about the way the other groups uh, viewed their freedom. Strong and weak are not synonyms for right and wrong, good and bad, inferior or superior and paul would tell you that in many cases they were both boneheads that's what he's trying to get across here and so you get to verse two and you see that whole meat-eating thing the worry in their particular case was and and this is based on their experience and their immersion in the mosaic law you could see why the jewish christians would struggle with this most of the meat that was sold at the markets at that time that they were eating had been involved at one time or another in in a sacrifice to idols that it was it was a it was an element of idol worship that they were worshiping false gods with this meat and that's a problem for jews and so if you're a jewish christian you're struggling with how you can suddenly eat meat and that's okay i mean you you know you, for you for 30 40 50 years it was wrong to eat meat and so there's a little bit of a struggle here but paul comes along also and says well we can't what, what, if, what if you took every one of those things to its logical conclusion? This is what he would say to those who are weak in faith. You, what if you took every one of those to, uh, to its logical conclusion? Do, do you understand in the 21st century, there are people who idolize money, right? So what if we came along now and said, you know, as Christians, we should never handle or touch money because somebody was worshiping it as an idol, as a false god. So suddenly what happens is if you let the weak control everything, you realize that nobody can do anything at all. So this is, this is one of the struggles that we have, one of the tensions. And then the rest of that section, verses 2 through 4, we see that the acceptance of one another is mutual on the weak of the strong and the weak. Paul's not just talking to one group. He's saying you both need to learn how to accept each other and, 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 and converse with each other in a gospel-centered, loving way but we do know the one who's weaker in faith tends to have this pious and, and immature judgment of the, of the behavior of others in these disputable matters, what, what some weaker um, in faith would call uh, indulgences. They're indulging in behavior that's, that I would say is wrong and it's, and it's a bit offensive to me. So we talked a little bit about this. I'm not going to go deep. I'm not going to go into any of these at all, not even deep. But what are those indulgence issues, those disputable matter issues that we deal with in the church today in the 21st century? Well, here's some of them. First of all, we talk a lot about media choices and entertainment. Those are disputable matter for a lot, matters for a lot of Christians. Media choices and entertainment. Theater. Movies. Music. Ooh, music. You know the guy that read the, the Word this morning, David Massey? I mean, he likes Metallica. And that's why we shun him. I just wanted to make sure you understood that. (laughs) So, media choices, entertainment, certainly alcohol, tobacco. Never really run into this at Redemption Arcadia, but I have in other places. Certain card games and board games. Uh, Certainly fashion becomes a disputable matter. Tattoos, piercings, translation of the which translation sports now let me explain that i'm not talking about the disputable matters when myers gets up here and talks about how the denver broncos are going to take over the world i'm not talking about that i'm talking about the legitimate concern that some parents have about whether or not they should get their children involved in athletics we talk about those things material wealth diet nutrition food types and food sources parenting Vaccination, school choice, discipline, diapers, politics. Listen, there are things that Scripture speaks very clearly to. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about those things that Scripture doesn't speak real clearly to or that that, that Scripture doesn't speak to at all that we're wrestling with here. You know, we often talk about Charles Spurgeon. And we talk about him with, the, with deserved reverence and honor and amazement for Charles Spurgeon, this great preacher from uh, the 19th century. I mean, he was amazing. We read his stuff and uh, uh, Myers mentioned him again. I don't think Myers can preach a sermon without quoting Charles Spurgeon. And that's a good thing. That is a really good thing. But check this out. Back in the day when he <clears throat> and another guy, another evangelist named Joseph Parker, they were just killing it together in England. They were, ju- they were friends and they were just absolutely killing it, but then all of a sudden there was a conflict between Parker and Spurgeon. Spurgeon learned that Parker was going to the theater. You parents at Veritas and Archway. I don't know about that theater thing, at least from Spurgeon's eyes. I'm kidding. You, like, people are like really scared right now, okay? and and he said Parker is unspiritual because he goes to the theater. He imbibes in that form of entertainment. But Parker had Spurgeon dead to rights because Spurgeon smoked cigars. And back then, the belief was, as it is now in some Christian circles, that if you smoke cigars, you were going to end up in the lowest level of Dante's hell. That was your destination. Okay, And so there was a rift between the two. And so one time... Uh, some people had Spurgeon and they were asking him questions and they asked him about this, this little rift and they said, so what about the cigar smoking? And, and, and Spurgeon said, well, it's okay that I smoke cigars because I don't smoke them to excess. And of course, the person asked what I would have asked, the good follow-up question, what do you mean you don't smoke them to excess? And Spurgeon leaned forward and his eyes narrowed and he said, it means I don't smoke my cigars more than two at a time not exactly a charitable, loving, compassionate response. Amen? There was some arrogance there in Spurgeon expressing his freedom. So I ask you, my Arcadian brothers and sisters, our our freedom in Christ, are we manifesting this in deference to making other people stumble. We're going to look at that in the next uh part of the of the chapter is we don't want to cause the weaker brothers and s- sisters to stumble. We can have conversations with them, but we don't want them to stumble now to be fair to Spurgeon let me finish the story this is interesting let me finish the story for you on Spurgeon several years later he was walking down the street in his neighborhood and he looked over and sh- in a shop window there the shopkeeper had put some cigars in the window and he had put a sign next to the cigars smoke the same cigars that Charles Spurgeon smokes and at that moment Charles Spurgeon so just the Holy Spirit hit him and said you might be causing your weaker brother or sister, 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 back in the day when sisters didn't smoke cigars, you might be causing your weaker brother or sister to stumble and he quit smoking cigars. You see the wrestling that we have to do with this stuff? It's pretty pretty interesting, can get pretty tense sometimes. And then verse 4, verse 4 is maybe my favorite verse in here. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? Now, Paul in verse 4 is speaking very metaphorically. Back in their context, in their historical context, if there was a a servant or a slave or an employee of somebody else, no one had the right to question that servant and their behavior. Only the master had the right to talk to the servant about their behavior. So he says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So here's the metaphor. Our Master is Christ. You don't judge them. Christ will judge them. So it is It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And then I love this. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. There's part of the gospel for us right there. It's the Lord who makes us stand, not each other. It's not that we don't need each other and it's not that we don't value each other, but who makes us stand, who gives us our power is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Him and Him alone. There's the gospel. And that should give us great comfort, great freedom, And the ability to look at this and say, how is this going to affect relationship and community? That is really important stuff. You need to understand that you and I stand in grace, not in condemnation. So we accept one another in Christ, but we also need to know what it is that we think and why we think it. That's verses 5 and 6. Each of you should be fully convinced in his or her own mind. That word fully convinced literally means you need to do your work. You need to do your work. You don't get to just read a bumper sticker or read a tweet and go, I believe in that, that's very clever. You have to know why you believe what you believe. And it has to be in relationship to the gospel and sound biblical teaching. So we need to study. We need to pray. We need to know God. We need to be in community with other believers so that we can have these conversations. This is not, Paul is not affirming in Judges when it says several times in Judges, in those days, Israel did not have a king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. No, what was happening in Israel during that time, everyone doing what was right in their own eyes, they were doing it apart from what God would have us do. It was apart from God's will. Paul is saying, you need. You need to know what you believe. You need to be fully convinced in your mind based on what God has revealed to you. And here's just one little example. You may not realize this, but I deal with this quite a bit. It's a little bit scary and freakish the number of people who would define themselves as Christians who come to me and they tell me things like, God's okay with my adultery because of my situation. If anybody had to live in my situation, they would understand why I'm committing adultery. God's not okay with your adultery, and Scripture has spoken directly to this. This is not you being fully convinced in your own mind. This is you doing what's right in your own eyes because there is no king in your life, and that king needs to be Jesus. Mounts, Robert Mounts, who's a great scholar, confirms that this is what verses 5 and 6 are all about. He writes this, All believers live their lives accountable to God, even in terms of being fully convinced in your own mind. This is not a way to let us off the hook for obeying God. So then, those last six verses tell us exactly who it is who is ultimately in charge. You look at verses 7 and 8. And this is Paul now moving the conversation and the emphasis to God. For, no one, uh, for none of us lives lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. Who do we belong to? To whom is your life lived? None of us die to ourselves. None of us live to ourselves. Yet the challenge, of course, is that that's the narrative of the world. That's the narrative that the world gives us. You live to yourself. You die to yourself. Do what you think is right. Follow your heart. And that's the wrong narrative. The narrative is that we live and die to Christ. All of us, whether we realize it or accept it or not, we are going to live and die to God. And He is the ultimate arbiter and judge and, and person who is going to make these decisions on our behalf. And then verses 9 through 12, the last four, very simply and clearly tell us that Jesus is Lord and he's the Lord of all. He's the Lord of the living and dead. His lordship is universal. He's the Lord of the fundamentalist and the free spirit. He's the Lord of the irreligious, the religious, the non-religious, the spiritual, the unspiritual. He is Lord over all time. He is Lord of the people who have already uh, died. He's Lord of the people who haven't lived yet. He's Lord of you and me. And as Lord, he is both judge and savior. Of everything, everywhere, and always. Paul says to each, the weak and the strong, the Lord is the judge, not you. So here's our application. Five quick points. Number one, I see five warnings in this passage. Five warnings. Let me list them out for you real quickly. Number one, we are not to quarrel needlessly over these disputable matters. That that word that's translated quarrel literally means not needless quarreling. There's going to have to be some discussion. There is good debate in church. Amen? We can have good debates. That wasn't a very good amen. There is good debate in church. Amen? We should have these good debates. It's okay to do that. But, but at the same time, we need to hold on loosely. Rather than squeezing tight, we should hold on loosely and we should be very discerning about what it is that we are going to close our hands on. There are some issues that we close our hands on. The the supremacy and the righteousness of Christ. The, the, The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The substitutionary, sacrificial atonement of Christ. Those are things that we hold close and dearly. The authority of Scripture in our lives But we need to know when we should hold on to these things loosely. There was a great essay that was uh, written in 2009 uh, by a guy, and I agree with his theory. His theory is this. The more we try to suppress volatility, the more volatility erupts. The more we try to control volatility, the more it just just goes crazy. Sometimes you and I need to let something go for it to get better. How many hills are you and I going to die on that are needless? That's the first warning. Here's the second warning. Don't ever use judgment to try to unify the church. Paul says that we need to, in love, encounter and pursue one another, not just judge one another. A lot of churches have tried to do unifying behavior through judgmentalism, and it usually doesn't work out very well. Number three, be welcoming. Instead of judging, be welcoming. Uh, I know that there are times when we have to draw a line in the sand. I get that. But I will tell you, I've said this for years, I would much rather err on the side of grace than on the side of jerk, okay? Now, that might be stated a little bit too strongly, but I'm talking about myself, so it's okay. Number four, we need to remember that God is ultimately the one to whom we answer. That's a warning. We answer to him. And number five, this is a big one. When we do have the conversations, when we do counsel each other, when the strong in faith counsel the weak in faith, and vice versa, we need to counsel in love and discernment, wisdom and compassion, not in arrogance and dismissiveness. Here's application point number two. The principle that Paul is teaching is not for us in the church to just find the lowest common denominator and live there. A lot of people think that that's what's happening here. Well, just find the lowest common denominator with everybody can agree with and live there. That's the easy way out, and that's not what he's saying. Rather, the Holy Spirit calls us very specifically to vigorously pursue one another with a spirit of love and understanding. It's the church that is so unified that they don't stand for anything. That's a problem. Churches that are unhealthy are sometimes unhealthy because there is a lack of rigorous debate. We need to recognize that. Number three, often a brother or sister in Christ will claim that they are being marginalized in a church when in fact it is their judgmental attitude towards others that is causing their marginalization. When you find that fellowship in your church is getting more and more difficult to come by, don't automatically assume that it's obviously everybody else's fault. It might very well be. I get that. But if you automatically default to that every single time, you will never learn anything. You will never grow. You will always break relationship. You will always break covenant. And you will always run. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, think of yourself first with sober judgment. Do not go to everybody else's at fault, not me. Think of yourself first with sober judgment. Number four, I want to come back just briefly to that idea of being fully convinced in your own mind. Know why you believe what you believe. Study, read, learn, discuss. Know God and His Word. Pull this thing out and read it occasionally. It's amazing what's in there and what you might find. When I was at um, my last church, I, it was it was, um, it was was amazing to me how often uh, this conversation would be had. Somebody would come to me and say, Pastor Frank, Pastor Frank, Tell me what it is that I'm supposed to believe about this. I go, oh, I don't know. What do you think you should believe about this? No, 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 no. You're my pastor. Tell me what I believe about this. That's not helpful. Now, now it doesn't mean that I'm not going to engage and have a conversation. But really, you're asking for a lot of trouble if you're just saying to somebody else, tell me what I think, tell me what I believe, and I'm good to go. Because you're not good to go. Because the minute somebody questions you, they're going to say, why do you believe what you believe? And you're going to say, because my pastor told me. That's really lame. You need to know why you believe what you believe. Be fully convinced in your own mind by doing your work. And I can be a part of that and I want to be a part of that but you need need to work at this. Those with no convictions are not pursuing discipleship. If you have no conviction about anything, you're not learning, you're not growing, you're not pursuing discipleship. Number five, we need to accept the lordship of Christ in all things. And you know what's funny? What's ironically funny is in all of our judging, the weak judging the strong, the strong judging the weak, we need to remember that all of us are going to stand before the judgment throne of God and he's going to judge us on our judgmentalism. And if you're wondering where the gospel is in this, I've already mentioned it a few times, but let me wrap up with another place where I find the gospel in this. This idea that we're trying to save ourselves by monitoring the behavior of others or that we're trying to save others by monitoring their behavior and piously condemning them for whatever it is they're doing, their freedom or their lack of freedom, whatever it is, this idea that we can save ourselves and save others is just Wrong. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ, he tells us at the end of Matthew. All authority. He doesn't say, I've got some authority and you have some authority. He says, all authority has been given to me. All things are in subjection to Christ. Eleven times in this passage, Jesus is called Lord. you know why? Because He has authority. A Lord has authority over us. And why does He have the authority? because he rose from the grave he defeated death for you and me so that we could live but yet he expresses that authority through grace and welcome he expresses his power and his authority through grace and welcome verse three god has welcomed him god has welcomed her god has welcomed you god has welcomed me we need to remember and understand and embrace and remind ourselves every single day you and I have a grace based, welcoming Savior, not a works based, behavior monitoring Savior. Amen.